I've been fortunate to talk and meet all those key people, the four key people involved in helping bring peace to Ireland. Frank Steele, MI6, Michael Oakley, MI6, Brendan Duddy, who was the crucial go-between, as you know, and, and Robert, MI5, formerly MI6. I've been fortunate, privileged to meet them face to face and talk to them in great length to try and put this incredibly complex picture together. And I've referred to Robert as, you know, the missing link in the jigsaw of peace, which is what he was. He was the final piece in the jigsaw that, that ultimately leads to, it leads to Good Friday. And behind the scenes, got the intelligence service, services crucially trying to get the IRA to stop killing people and enter talks because without a ceasefire and an end to violence, there would have been no Good Friday Agreement. That's the crucial contribution that the people that I've just mentioned were involved in over a long, over what, nearly 30 years? It's an astonishing story. It's part of history. Hello and welcome to the podcast. My name is Oliver Webb Carter. I'm the editor and your host. And my guest this week is a veteran journalist of the conflict in Northern Ireland known as the Troubles. Since 1972, Peter Taylor has spoken with all sides. Civilians across the province, the British Army, the IRA, the Loyalist paramilitaries, the RUC and Special Branch, and other more clandestine forces such as MI5 and MI6. And it's that side of the Troubles that we're talking about today. In his new book, Operation Chiffon, Peter describes the intelligence world in Northern Ireland from the early 70s all the way through to the late 90s and the signing of the Good Friday Agreement. Three British intelligence officers, Frank Steele and Michael Oatley of MI6, and then a spy known only as Robert of MI5, all sought to persuade the IRA and the British government to talk peace. But there was one man who linked them all and who, at great personal risk, worked tirelessly with the IRA itself and British intelligence until in 1998 the Good Friday Agreement was signed and peace returned to Northern Ireland. That man was Brendan Duddy, a resident of Derry, Londonderry. Peter Taylor is an extraordinary journalist who has persuaded all sides, including terrorists, spies, soldiers and civilians, to trust him to tell their tale. Coming up, I've got Serhi Plocky on the Russo-Ukrainian War, Charles Spencer on Charles II, The Parthenon Marbles with Paul Cartledge, and plenty others, so do subscribe, rate and review if you can. Until then, I'll hand you over to me, talking with Peter Taylor on The Troubles. Peter Taylor, welcome to the Aspects of History podcast. This is a real pleasure for me to have you on. So thank you. Thank you, Oliver. Nice to be here. Great stuff. Um, and so we're, we're here to talk about your latest book, Operation Chiffon, which is really the conclusion of your, well, I guess it's now a quadrilogy, if, if that's the right word for it, the um, of your previous books, Provos, Loyalists and Brits, and this is the fourth and final part, which is the intelligence, the the, the intelligence services involvement in Northern Ireland. And I really wanted to, to start because, you know, you've got a hugely distinguished career in Northern Ireland and you've arrived in Northern, Northern Ireland on the night of Bloody right. Sunday on the 30th of January, 72. 
And just reading the book, it's very interesting because, you know, within a few months, we have the first, there's a ceasefire and we have, uh, and this is involvement with Frank Steele, who's the first of your intelligence officers. But I just wondered, if for the benefit of the listeners, would you mind just explaining what you had landed into in on the night of the 30th of January for those who might not be hugely familiar with the state of play that night? It was one of the landmark moments in the history of Northern Ireland, a landmark moment in my personal experience of coming to terms with the conflict. I arrived in Derry, not, not totally ignorant of what the conflict was about, but only having the most general view of it. And I didn't know where Londonderry was. I didn't know why it was called Londonderry and Derry at the same time. So I arrived not being a totally ignorant journalist, but being a sort of rather naive young journalist who'd never actually set foot in Ireland, North or South before. And I actually arrived in Bloody Sunday on the evening of that Sunday after the killings had actually happened. We were going to film it for a documentary, but the trade union wouldn't pay the danger money that, uh, or the, the company Thames Television wouldn't pay the danger money the union were demanding. So instead of filming it with three crews, we didn't film it with any crews. But when I heard what had happened on the news that afternoon, I got straight on the next plane, went over to Derry, woke up the following morning, went into the bog side, not having much idea of, well, I knew that 13 innocent people had been killed, but I couldn't understand you know, why this had happened, why my soldiers, me being a Brit from the parachute regiment, were alleged to have shot dead in cold blood 13 uh, innocent civil rights marchers. And I felt guilty that that appeared to be my soldiers who were responsible, but also guilty that me as a young journalist knew very little about the conflict. And I decided there and then I'd better try and find out. And I spent the next 50 years trying to do just that. Yeah, it's, I mean, I guess I suppose it's, 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 it's dominated your life since, which... You, I guess when you were getting on the plane that night, you didn't think this would happen. No. <laughs> I thought it would be, you know, quite a quick in and out job uh, doing a programme for that week, which in fact we did call Two Sides of a Story. That was a landmark programme in which I interviewed and I saw what happened and a colleague interviewed the Paris. And we had two rolls of film. There wasn't video in those days, which we showed unedited. And it was called Two, two Sides of a Story and managed to evade the, the injunction necessitated by the Widgery report because it was therefore you know, un, under wraps. And so that was, my, that was my first experience. And I never thought I'd spend the next 50 years covering the conflict as it got worse and worse and worse, which is why I carried on covering it. And the more I found out, the more fascinated I became and the more involved I became and the more I got, got to know people on all sides, be it Republican, Nationalist, Loyalist, Unionist, Security Services, RUC, Army. I made contact with them all over a period of years and therefore, you know, was in a privileged position to get a fairly inside view from all sides of what was happening and critically why it had happened and even more critically, how on earth were we going to find a way out of it? In fact, that was long-term of Operation Chiffon, because Operation Chiffon begins its long journey, although it wasn't called Chiffon at the time, in those bloody, awful days of the early 1970s. That's when the framework 
the platform was built from which ultimately Operation Chiffon in the early 1990s uh, was built and materialized. Well, I, I was going to bring this up, but since you've mentioned your ability, and it, it is a, a unique ability, it seems, to gain access and to have access throughout the trouble, the period of the troubles with all facets, every side and every every part of the security services and loyalists and Republicans. Have you reflected on on what it was about your, I don't know, your style or, or your approach that means that all sides were willing to talk to you and and you were able to get such a, an amazing cross view of all sides? Oliver, it took a long time. You don't just go in there and start talking to people because what you have to do over a period of time is gain their confidence so they will trust you and they will therefore say things they perhaps wouldn't normally say and I have to trust them so it's a two-way thing and that takes a long time to build up and also I was always driven by the need to find out to ask questions of people with no no agenda the only agenda being how has this happened and how do we restore peace whatever peace means to Northern Ireland. In other words, how do we get out of, out of the so-called troubles, out of this awful conflict? And that was the only thing that motivated me. I didn't have any particular agenda apart from that of a journalist trying, you know, trying to find out. And I think, and I hope that, you know, most people I spoke to accepted me for what I said and, and, and what my object was in, in talking to them. Uh, and that uh, trust was built up over, you know, over, over many years. I also think there wasn't a threatening presence. I mean, at first, I was a journalist and I was from the BBC and therefore I was not trusted either by the loyalists or by the Republicans. And it, the nationalists also were sceptical. So, you know, journalists didn't have a great reputation in those early days because each side thought that those journalists whoever they were working for, were biased for one, um, biased towards one side or the other, which I like to think I, I never was. So it was building up that trust, getting people to believe what I, to believe that I was doing what I said I was doing. And from time to time, after making, you know, a programme or a documentary or a series, I would actually go back to Northern Ireland. In those days, it was much easier because Thames Television, you know, could afford to send me back again with no guarantee I would come back from a programme, but it meant I could pick up with the people I'd interviewed without whom the programme would have been possible, discuss it with them. Uh, and, and the first question I invariably asked was, was I fair? Did I do? Do you think I did what I said I would do? And in most cases they said, mm, yeah, well, sort of you know, pretty good for a Brit, as well, <laughs> which is the sort of Republican view. And loyalists were saying, Yes, yeah, apart from one or two you know, minor things. So that's, that's basically how it worked. And I got to know a lot of these people uh, on all sides who, you know, in fact, became my friends. And when I would go over, I would just call in and see them and have a chat with them, including people like Martin McGuinness and Ian Paisley as well, complete opposite ends of the spectrum, politically and ideologically. Uh, and I, I, I had their trust, so they would you know, open up to a certain extent for me, and that includes McGuinness and uh, remarkably Ian Paisley, and that they were the sort of building blocks for what I was able to do. The great hero of the book is is Brendan Duddy, who mm. is involved from very early on. 
But it's extraordinary to me not being familiar, you know, not being alive in 1972, but in the way with, with bloody Sunday being such a boon for the IRA, because that prompted so many um, volunteers to the IRA within a few months, there's a, there's a ceasefire. And I just wondered, I mean, Brendan Duddy plays this sort of crucial role throughout, but how do we get from bloody Sunday to, to a, to a ceasefire? Well, Brendan's first, <clears throat> first role in these events was helping get IRA weapons out of the bog side into the Cregan or wherever to, to take them out of the potential area of conflict because the IRA was aware of what the risks were and the danger to their own community from gunfire. So the order was given by the commanding officer whom I interviewed, the IRA's commanding officer of the Derry Brigade, the order was given to get all weapons, all guns out of the bog side, which in fact did happen. And Brendan Duddy, who had in with with Republicans and I assume with the IRA, uh, was asked to help facilitate the removal of the weapons, which he did. And in that process, he got to know some of the then IRA leadership, like Rory O'Brody, Martin McGuinness, who was almost a neighbour of Brendan's anyway. Um, And that's when he was able to make contact with members of the IRA then leadership in 1972. So that was his seminal role in making those contacts, which evolved into the back channel and the 1975 ceasefire. But Brendan didn't have any direct role in the, in the first talks between the British government and the Northern Ireland Secretary William Whitelaw in 1972, astonishingly held in a fashionable Cheney Walk in Chelsea, when, when Willie Whitelaw swallowed all his principles and encouraged in particular by Frank Steele, the wonderful Frank Steele, my interview almost on his deathbed, which Brendan wasn't directly involved in that, but he was involved in the events that uh, subsequently followed. And the remarkable thing about Cheney Walk is A, that it happened with a senior British minister, Willie Whitelaw, actually meeting the leadership of the IRA, Sean McSteerfan, Seamus Toomey, Martin McGuinness and David O'Connell. In fact, the cover of the book, that rather mysterious photograph on the cover of the book, which is explained in in an author's notes at the very beginning, is a photograph that I'd never seen before, which is those four senior uh, IRA leaders, uh, Max Stephen, Toomey, McGuinness and David O'Connell, standing outside the hall in, I think it's the hall was actually in the Cregan rather than the bog side, either just before or just after the seminal meeting in which Sean McSteerfan, the chief of staff, invites <coughs> William Whitelaw to come to Derry, meet the IRA to discuss peace. We, nobody ever thought for a moment that he would do that. But in fact, the process that shortly afterwards led to the IRA ceasefire and led to Cheney Walk with um, Willie Whitelaw meeting and shaking hands with the leader of the IRA, which he said was, was the most unfortunate thing he'd ever done in his political career. And he, he didn't resent doing it, but he, he felt deeply uncomfortable doing it. He only did it because Frank Steele and others had encouraged him to go ahead and actually shake the hand. And he actually pronounced, I remember, because I interviewed Whitelaw shortly afterwards about it, in 1974, I think. And uh, he said, 
I was told by one of their, uh, actually it was by, uh, by Frank Steele, that Whitelaw actually learned how to pronounce Sean McStephen's name properly in Irish. So, you know, he, he went the extra mile, but it, it, you know, it was never going to work because the IRA, the leadership was saying, we want you, the Brits, out, out of Ireland, out of the north of Ireland by 1975, we're talking 74. In other words, three years time, in, in three years time, pack your bags, get on the boats and go home. That was never going to happen. So the ceasefire lasted, I think it lasted two days and broke down, uh, led, by Sh uh, led by Seamus Toomey, who was the hardline commander of the Belfast Brigade, uh, broke down in Lenadoon Avenue in West Belfast uh, when there was a standoff with the British Army and gunfire broke out. And I was there at the time. And when I saw what was leading up to it, I just knew when the shooting started, the ceasefire was over. So that was the beginning. That was the first time that the British met the IRA face to face since the end of the War of Independence in 19, 1921. That was the precedent had been set though by Whitelaw then, which Whilst the talks failed, does that mean that would, would, would it be fair to say that was an important step that allowed successive governments to, if not, you know, um, talk peace, but at least have talks to talk peace? Exactly. It sort of broke the taboo that it could happen. Uh, Whitelaw's famous remark was, it was the biggest mistake of my political career. That's what Whitelaw said afterwards, because he was so embarrassed because it had got absolutely nowhere. They didn't trust the IRA. The ceasefire ended two days later. But what it did mean is that there were, as a result, contacts with the IRA leadership, which subsequently Brendan Duddy and Michael Oakley became involved with down the back channel because there was also a recognition. I mean, there were, there were two camps in the British government and always have been. One camp that says, look, the only way we're going to resolve this is politically. There's no military victory on the cards. And the other side, which is probably you know, unionists and loyalists <clears throat> and the police too, and sections of the army who believed that we, the British, could actually defeat the IRA militarily. So you've got one side saying there's got to be a political solution. The other side saying, but we've got to, you know, we can, we can defeat the IRA. And that was all about you know, allegedly taking the gloves off um, and doing things that really, you know, we shouldn't have done. Bloody Sunday was a terrible mistake. It wasn't, a, you know, it, it wasn't sort of organised. It was never intended to end like that, but it did. So lots of lessons were learned. And th through the 70s, 80s and 90s, through to Operation Chiffon, that was the ultimate, I was going to say triumph, which is too strong a word, but that was the culmination of those talks that began in 1972 at Cheney Walk when the first signs were that the British were prepared to talk to the IRA and the IRA was prepared and actually wanted to talk to the British anyway because the IRA too recognised, like section of the British establishment, that there had to be dialogue. So through this 30-year period, those are the tensions within government and on the ground. And Operation Chiffon, uh, that was in 1991, all those years, what we're talking about 20 years after, after Cheney Walk, uh, was the sort of culmination of all that had been built by Brendan Duddy and Michael Oakley in the preceding years, and Frank Steele, because Frank was 
you know, Frank was a pioneer. Frank put the pieces in place that enabled Cheney Walk to, to, to happen. He was a great, great guy, great guy. Well, Michael Oatley, who, I mean, I guess we're very lucky for the successive intelligence officers and of course, Brendan Duddy, but on the British side, Michael Oatley, Frank Steele, Michael Oatley and, and Robert, we're very lucky that they did want, they were in that camp that thought that talks were uh, were important. Had we had an intelligence officer who probably took a more hardline view, then who knows what would have happened, I suppose. Well, it wouldn't have happened. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think. And what drove Michael Oatley, what drove Frank Steele and Michael Oatley and Brendan Dully and Robert was one thing, which is this has got to be brought to an end. You know, we cannot go on killing each other like this. There's got to be an end game. That end game has to be peace. How do we get there? And all those four people recognised that there had to be through some kind of political dialogue. The question was, what was the end game? What was the possible solution that could be devised that had to involve everybody? The other important thing to note is that all the way through this period, from the early 70s, through to Operation Chiffon, all the way through to the Good Friday Agreement of 1998, the British government, whoever was speaking for the British government to the IRA or to the Republicans and Nationalists, made it absolutely clear that there could be no agreement without the consent of the majority. That you know, The British held firm, firm to that. Actually, the IRA just didn't accept that because it was all you know, Britain's fault. Um, the unionists were being used as a blockage to progress. Uh, Whereas in fact, in the end, what turned the tables was when the IRA finally recognized, the penny, if you like, finally dropped, that if there was to be a solution, unionists, loyalists would have to be involved, have to be involved. And the IRA and Sinn Féin gradually came to realize that by the end of the 1980s, it was a question of, you know, how were those intentions made real? And the important thing about Martin McGuinness putting to one side what he may or may not have done beforehand, which one can't do because he was a senior IRA commander. Uh, and if he wasn't responsible for heinous things, his organization uh, certainly was. That's why Martin McGuinness, remarkably in the end, when he became, again, astonishingly deputy minister in the power sharing government that flowed from Good Friday, and sharing power with Ian Paisley, Astonishing, never ever thought that would happen. That's when he shook hands with the Queen and dined with her at Windsor Castle in honour of the Irish president, donning white tie and tails, just the most amazing scene that one never ever dreamt one would see. But the reason for that was to show unionists that McGuinness and the Republican movement, the IRA and Sinn Fein, were sincere, genuine, when they said. They wanted, they recognised that unionists, nationalists, uh, sorry, unionists and loyalists would have to be involved in any settlement. And that, I think, was um, McGuinness's great achievement in, in the journey that, uh, uh, that he made. And that's crucial. And it, you know, if, if ever there is to be a United Ireland, it can only happen with the consent of the majority. But now, the majority is now <laughs> no longer unionist. Or, or Catholics have a majority, but it's a very it's a tiny majority still. But they do have the majority, so the demographics are changing. 
But to get to where we are now, and to get to Good Friday and beyond, to understand how that happened is to understand the peace process that began with its, you know, early, early beginnings in the 1970s, right the way through, through the hunger strike that was the great turning point, in my view, in the conflict, through to Chiffon and, uh, and the Good Friday Agreement. Because the point of Operation Chiffon was twofold. One, to get the IRA to stop killing people, to call an end to the so-called armed struggle. And secondly, to get the IRA to engage in talks. And that's, that's what Good Friday was. So, so Operation Chiffon was important in understanding the mechanism that led to Good Friday and the role played by, by Robert, who succeeded, and, and Frank Steele. So, you know, I, I'm not saying in the book or in the documentary that that was, you know, the single reason why there was Good Friday. It wasn't the case at all. But the important thing to bear in mind is that when Robert said to McGuinness and Jerry Kelly, this island will be as one, that they actually believed what he said because they saw him. And I went back again and interviewed Jerry Kelly, not being able to interview Martin McGuinness, who is no longer with us. And I asked Kelly, did, did you actually believe him? And he said, yeah, we believed him. And I said, well, why did you believe him? He said, because we were told he was, quote, the British government representative, and therefore he was speaking on behalf of the British government. And I went on, this isn't, isn't in the book, this is after I finished the book, I asked Kelly if when McGuinness did the rounds of his commanders north and south of the border, getting them to go along with the ceasefire, I said, you know, did or would Martin have used what, what Robert said as an encouragement? And he almost certainly, yes, I certainly did. He said, I, me, Jerry Kelly, I would say to the people that I was speaking to, i.e. IRA volunteers and commanders that Jerry Kelly would have been familiar with, um, I certainly said, repeated what Robert had said, and that we believed him because he was speaking on behalf of the British government. Although, this is the important um, caveat, although, of course, we were sceptical because he was the British government. In other words, we accepted what he said, but we didn't necessarily agree, believe that they were going to do it. But the important thing is that was Robert's credibility. And that has to be taken into account in looking at his role and Operation Chiffon's role on the road to, um, on the road to Good Friday. I think what, what Robert did is, 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 give, is encourage the IRA to go down a road with more determination that they've been going down anyway. So, it's important to see what the context is. And the bigger picture, the bigger picture, that if you look at the story of the book, which is more than Robert and Operation Chiffon, it's really about the arc from those dreadful, bloody days of the 1970s, that was the bloodiest decade, decade of the conflict. That was my introduction. That's when I was bloodied into the, into the conflict, met metaphorically. An arc from the dark days of the 70s all the way through to Good Friday and looking at how a democratic society, a democratic government and its officers were able to transform war into peace. And that's a sort of object lesson in what to do. We learned many, many lessons along the way, but to show that it was possible and that the role of the intelligence services, MI6 and MI5, 
and also army intelligence and special branch. But in particular, five and six was absolutely crucial in getting us to where we were on, the, on Good Friday. Although, to be fair, they've never talked about why the interview with Robert was so remarkable. Uh, I've been fortunate to talk and meet all those key people, the four key people involved in helping bring peace to Ireland. Frank Steele, MI6, Michael Oakley, MI6, Brendan Duddy, who was the crucial go-between, as you know, and, and Robert, MI5, formerly MI6. Having fortunate, privileged to meet them face to face and talk to them in great length to try and put this incredibly complex picture together. And I've referred to Robert as, you know, the missing link in the jigsaw of peace, which is what he was. He was the final piece in the jigsaw that, that ultimately leads to, it leads to Good Friday, which is not in any sense <laughs> the enormous contribution um, that the Irish Taoiseachs made, you know, Bertie O'Hearn and his predecessors, um, and the British government made, that the governments made. So you, you know, on, 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 the, on the surface, you've got all the mechanisms, all the political mechanisms above board trying to get out of this mess. And behind the scenes, got the intelligence service, services, crucially, trying to get the IRA to stop killing people and enter talks. Because without a ceasefire and an end to violence, there would have been no Good Friday Agreement. That's the crucial contribution that the people that I've just mentioned were involved in over a long, over what, nearly 30 years? It's an astonishing story. It's part of history. And it's a part of history that people are not familiar with, at least the bigger picture of how it happened. And certainly the last stage of Operation Chiffon, nobody was aware of the detail. And Robert could fill in those, those blanks, which is why he got in touch with me saying, now if there are anything, if you've got any blanks or any questions, I'm now maybe in a position to help you answer them. Well, there's no doubt about it. It's, it's historic. But and as I was reading, Robert, the, in your book, the line that you've just mentioned, the island will be as one. I almost couldn't believe that a British government official was saying that to the IRA, because, as you say, it got the IRA to, to, to the table. But it was something that, well, it's not the case now, and it may be many, many years until the island is as one. If it if it happens, yes. exactly, exactly. So was it almost that was a sentence that the IRA needed rather than believed, so that they could think, then persuade them? Yeah, I, I think you're right, Oliver. But I've obviously said at considerable length with Robert. You know, why did you say this? What was your authority? Because he wasn't authorized to go to that meeting. In fact, as you know, he was forbidden to go to that meeting. Broke all the rules because he knew if he didn't go, all the efforts over the past previous you know twenty odd years. We're going to go down the tubes. So he, he went to save the process that had been built up over, over so many years. Um, and he said, I said it because I believed that that was or had been the British government's position. It's slightly complicated, but if you remember, Michael Oakley, before he retires, meets Martin McGuinness. Martin McGuinness makes it clear to Michael Oakley that the IRA is in the business of reaching some sort of compromise. Michael Oakley says to McGuinness, look, things, things are moving. 
the picture has changed. We're now part of Europe. This is obviously way before Brexit. And Good Friday happened in the context of the European Union. So I think what Michael Oakley implied, although didn't say so directly because I've asked him, is that things were changing, basically. I think what Robert did, and Robert says that he actually read several times over the um, note that Michael Oakley wrote for uh, Sir John Chilcott, who was the senior civil servant at the Northern Ireland office, is that he was reflecting, he says, what Michael Oakley had said. I think he was sugaring it. I think he was exaggerating it. What he said, he hadn't thought through. I mean, he, you know, he, he said he was sort of making things up as he went along in, in that meeting. He hadn't really thought it through. So those words, just he says, just sort of, just just sort of came out. Uh, and there's a piece which I could in, in the book when he says, I say, but weren't you nervous face to face with McGuinness and Jerry Kelly? And he said, well, I've been on the stage before at school. I played uh, Julius in Romeo and Juliet. It was before boys' school, uh, and I played King Lear and Julius Caesar, and therefore I was used to an audience. But now I had an audience not of you know, a school hall full of 500 parents, but an audience of two. So there's no doubt he exceeded his brief. He didn't have a brief, certainly not the brief that he gave. And I think he was sort of making it up as he went along. The point being to encourage the IRA to carry on down that particular road. And it was never British government policy. You know, Ireland would be as one. It never has been. The closest it came to it was Harold Wilson when he was leader of the opposition in 1960, is it 1970, but in the House of Commons. And I found the quote, which is in the book, when, when Harold Wilson, before he became prime minister, said, any solution to the Irish question has to involve the possibility of Irish or, or the desirability, whatever the word was, of Irish unity. So you know, that thought was always there in the background, but of course it was then sat on by Labour, firmly sat on by Tony Blair. As Blair realised prior to good unionists on board, he had to dispel any notion that the Brits' secret long-term plan was Irish unity. And, and Blair made that very clear from his first visit to Northern Ireland as Prime Minister, because the key thing was to, having got the IRA on board, in inverted commas, government, um, Tony Blair, then had to get the unionist. David Trimble, loyalist on board. Uh, and that was as difficult as getting the IRA and Sinn Féin on board. So how Good Friday actually happened was was astonishing. I, I never I never thought I could see it any more than I thought I would ever see Ian Paisley and Martin McGuinness sharing power, or Martin McGuinness dining with the Queen at uh, Windsor Castle. That's a measure of how things have changed. And it's how and why that has happened that I tried to I tried to chronicle in Operation Chiffon, which also traces the rise from nowhere in the early 70s of Sinn Féin. Sinn Féin is the largest political party on the island of Ireland, the largest political party in the North, where, of course, the, the, the um, first minister-elect, because there's no administration at the moment, is Michelle O'Neill, Sinn Féin, and it's likely that Sinn Féin will play a part in, in government, coalition government, after the Irish elections, I think, late, I think later this year. So that's a measure of how things have changed. So if we're looking at the arc of change from the 70s through 
to today, part of that change, a critical part, is the rise of Sinn Féin from nowhere to where they are today. And that was in no small respect due to the impact, the long-term impact of the hunger strike, Bobby Sands being elected to Westminster. I mean, that's crucial, isn't it? That, that is Absolutely, the, yeah. yeah. It's the, it is the, the central, pivotal moment in the conflict. I suppose <clears throat> that was a major miscalculation of the British government of the time, that the hunger strikers would gain so much support from the electors, the voters of the constituency that Bobby Sands stood for. It was never anticipated. I mean, there were, there were those voices within government. I mean, voices like you know, Michael Oakley, although Michael was then abroad for MI6 at the time. But there were those, shall we say, uh, quotes, enlightened voices who, who were not surprised that Boy Sands won because Margaret Thatcher had sort of dismissed the support that Sands and Sinn Féin had as being negligible. She never imagined that... that uh, that Sands would be elected. But he was a whole majority, but he was elected, and therefore for one of the leading IRA in the most prison to become a Westminster MP showed how much political support there was. And when 100,000 people turned out for his funeral, that simply underlined the fact that Sinn Féin was growing in political credibility and, and, and in numbers. And so you can trace what happened after the hunger strike through the Brighton bomb through various uh, Sinn Féin uh, annual meetings in which the tone changes and the hand is gradually extended to, to unionists from, from the hunger strike, as the IRA recognised. And Adams always recognised there would have to be a political solution of some kind. But he didn't want the hunger strike, did he? The IRA didn't want, not that Mr Adams is a member, was a member of the IRA. Of course, I wouldn't uh, make that as, mistake. <laughs> as, 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 we well, as we well know. But he was, he was against it because he, and I think probably most of his comrades, uh, felt that to put so much emphasis on politics would detract from the, quotes armed struggle. That was always the worry. And the hunger strike, it was feared by, by, by Adams and his colleagues in the leadership of the Republican movement uh, in Sinn Féin. That the hunger strike would detract from from the war, it would you know absorb energies that should go into fighting the war rather than fighting a political battle. Although Adams, of course, recognised that the battle was both a military battle, a war, but also a political battle because out of the war had to come politics. And Adams, you know, persuaded McGuinness, um, and that was a critical thing that this was the way forward. And it's interesting that it was McGuinness who shook hands with the Queen, partly because he was Deputy First Minister and therefore had the locker stand, locker standi uh, to do that. Uh, whereas, you know, it wasn't Adams who, who met the Queen. And it he not wanted. McGuinness. I don't know. I, I never asked him. But the, the, the point of it was easier for McGuinness to meet the Queen and shake hands because he was elected Deputy First Minister, right? Adams was elected Sinn Féin um, as, a, as a Westminster MP, but McGuinness had the trust and the support of the IRA's rank and file. But Jerry Adams didn't have that support, but the support for McGuinness amongst the rank and file, and I discussed it with a good number of members of the rank and file, was, was support for Martin McGuinness was visceral. 
you know, he, he was Martin, you know, he was, and I've, I always remember being in Derry in, might, might have been before or just after the hunger strike, when McGuinness was addressing an impromptu meeting in the street up one of the hills from the bogside into, into the, you know, the inner sanctum of the city. These narrow streets were thronged with people. And McGuinness was on a wagon giving an impromptu speech. And I always remember looking at him thinking, you know, there is the leader. I mean, he, you know, he had all those Michael Collins qualities and also ruthlessness that marked Michael Collins. Uh, but he managed narrowly, I think, to avoid the fate of Michael Collins, who was assassinated by his comrades because it was thought that, that Collins had betrayed the Holy Grail of Irish youth uh, by reaching a compromise. Uh, and there was always the danger that Martin McGuinness ran the same risk that he would be seen and was seen as a sellout. So his, by making that particular that McGuinness made, he was putting his life on the line. But he, you know, he died natural causes. He wasn't, uh, he wasn't assassinated. And the assassination was always something that was on the cards because of what he'd done. And he follows in the footsteps of Michael Collins. And there's a, it's a great part in your book where he's following in the footsteps of, of Michael Collins into the cabinet room in Downing Street. Yeah. And this is post-mortar bomb. So he, he says something like, this is where all the damage was done. And then there's nervousness or thinking that it's to do with the mortar bomb, but he's talking about the Anglo-Irish Treaty. That's right. And he sat... What had him said because it was, it was part of uh, Tony Blair's you know, rapprochement with the Republican movement. He invites McGuinness and Adams and some of their uh, colleagues, comrades, into Downing Street. And McGuinness, it is said, was sitting in the same chair in the same cabinet room where Michael Collins had signed the um, had signed the treaty. So when McGuinness says to uh, to Tony Blair. Uh, so this is where the damage was done then. They think, oh, that's a, that's a bit off, isn't it? Referring to the, the mortaring of Downing Street where the cabinet was actually meeting in this very room. And then McGuinness says, no, that was, um, it was here in this room, in this chair, that Michael Collins sold out the Republic, you know, sold out United Ireland, Irish Unity. Yeah. Lovely story and true and true. The freedom to achieve freedom, the Anglo-Irish Treaty. Right. Yeah. What's extraordinary is the 80s, and it comes across in the book, it's just sort of hugely depressing time because there's no real progress made and there are horrific atrocities taking place. But mm. I, I know you've mentioned this before, that it's really one of those atrocities, the Enniskillen bombing in 1987, which seems to have been a, if not necessarily a turning point, maybe a, a, a slight bend in the road that... I think, I think your first description is the more accurate. Uh, it was more than a bend in the road. I think it was a turning point that, you know, Enniskillen was, I don't think was ever meant to kill civilians. But the anticipation was that the bomb was placed where the army or the police would be you know, standing position. I'm sorry to interrupt you, Peter, but I always, if you're putting a bomb in a public place, you are almost certainly running the risk of killing civilians. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
that I that I accept. I've argued and been criticised for it. That by and large, with notable exceptions, and all those caveats, uh, the, the aim of the IRA was not to go out deliberately, like ISIS or Al Qaeda, to slaughter civilians as a sort of tactic to instil terror. Civilians were killed, and there were cases where it was pure sectarian killings, like Tully Vallon massacre, White Cross and Bestbrook, when those responsible were operating under so-called flags of convenience, the South Armagh uh, Republican Action Force and, and similar names. Um, but on, on Enniskillen, Enniskillen shook Jerry Adams, I was going to say to his foundations, which is perhaps a bit too strong, but Adams realised that it did the Republican movement a lot of damage because the Republican movement, the IRA, blamed for it quite rightly. And I asked McGuinness about it. I went to see him privately, uh, which wasn't easy because I wanted to talk to him about Enniskillen because I understood him to have been at the time the acting head of Northern Command that was responsible and say, you must have known about the bomb. He said, I didn't. I mean, he was clearly being economical with the verity, economical with the truth. He denied it because in a sense, he couldn't do anything other than, to, other than deny it. Um, but it was uncomfortable for McGuinness. It was uncomfortable for, for Jerry Adams. And he said so publicly that, you know, the movement should be ashamed of itself or worse than that effect. So the revulsion of Enniskillen was rather like the revulsion later on to the Wellington bombs where two little boys, two young boys were killed. And these events sort of backfired on those responsible, i.e. the IRA, and created a climate in which, you know, people said, look, this has got to stop, but also made the IRA recognise or helped the IRA recognise that they had to sue because it was not helping their cause. They recognised by this time that, you know, bombing and killing in isolation was not going to further the cause. And the question that I'm asked quite often is you know the IRA say that they wanted peace and yet they carried on killing people like like Warrington and other um, and the little you know the Bishopsgate bomb uh, they carried on with their campaign right up to the last minute before the ceasefire came and I asked uh, I asked Robert about this uh, and also I asked John Chilcott about it I think at one stage when when Sir John Chilcott was still alive. And they didn't sort of shrug their shoulders, but they simply said, and, and, but those echo the, both echoed the same sentiment, this is the way that they work. So it didn't come as any surprise to inform British mandarins and intelligence officers that this is the way they operated. You insert maximum pressure until before the ceasefire is declared. And if you look at previous ceasefires, that's the pattern. That's the pattern. You carry on. With the, with the armed campaign, the so-called armed struggle, until the last moment when the ceasefire is due at one minute past midnight or whatever, and that's when it stops. And that's the way they operate.
Brendan Duddy's role in the 90s sort of fades away once Roberts is effectively out of the game because yes. he resi- he's forced to resign or, or he chooses to resign, doesn't he? Over, But also, but also Brendan blots his coffee book. That's not the best phrase to use, but because the IRA suspected, McGuinness suspected that Brendan was saying things, reporting things that he maintained had been passed to him by, by McGuinness, basically, that were not true or the interpretation which was not true. Uh, and that led to Brendan being interrogated for what, two to three hours at home by four senior members of the IRA, two of whom one assumes would have been McGuinness and, uh, and Jerry Kelly. At, at that key meeting in, in, in Duddy's house, he's interrogated by Martin McGuinness, and McGuinness actually says to him, you know, you must be MI6 or MI5. So there was always that suspicion that he was working for the Brits. and. In a sense, he was working for the Brits, but he was working for the Brits as an agent of influence, I describe it, as being somebody who was working for the British in helping the British get to peace. That's that's how I've always viewed Brendan. He wasn't a he wasn't a tout, but there was always the worry, and certainly the worry of, of his family, who didn't know the detail of what Brendan was doing, that he might be seen as an agent, as an informer, as a tout, for which the penalty was well known to be bullet through the back of the head. So Brendan was always you know, walking a tightrope. And he tells the story, although Brendan could be uh, occasionally um, in the verite that he, he had a propensity to sort of embellish, when in the early days of what led up to the 1975 ceasefire that Michael Oakley helped orchestrate, Brendan Duddy uh, had to face the IRA's army council and convince them that he wasn't an that he wasn't a tout, he wasn't an agent, an infiltrator. And so he's interrogated by Seamus Toomey, a formidable figure, listed after Cheney Walk, and he's then sent upstairs to the room while they discuss what to do about Duddy, whether they should kill him as an agent or whether they should listen to him and Brendan tells a story, which may be slightly embellished, but anyway, he tells the story. He told me that in the room upstairs, the floorboards were you know, fairly thin or whatever, but he could hear what was going on downstairs. And he says he heard them discussing whether it was you know, thumbs up or thumbs down, so whether he should live or die. That's what Brendan says anyway. And certainly that illustrates the risk that he was always running. So in the end, when he's finally interrogated for the last time by McInnes, I assume it's Jerry Kelly and two others, one of whom may have been Jerry Adams, but I, I honestly don't know who the other two were, but Brendan would never, would never divulge that. That's when the parting of the ways happens. That's it. We want nothing more to do with you. And he accuses the British of burning the channel, destroying the channel, which was at the heart of all that had happened from, from Cheney Walk onwards to the late, 19, late 1990s. And also by that time, I think McGuinness and the IRA had decided that they, they had enough of back channels. They wanted to talk directly face to face with the Brits. And so Jonathan Powell, who was you know, a critical figure in Tony Blair's administration, uh, then talks to 
Brendan Duddy and, and does it face to face. So you've actually got government, Blair's government, talking, albeit indirectly, to the Republican leadership at first hand, which is what they wanted. And that's where we go on to Good Friday. And that's why Blair was able to invite Adams and to Downing Street. I mean, Blair played a, you know, Blair played a, a blinder, but he couldn't have done it without what John Major has set in place. I mean, John Major, I've long believed, was the sort of architect of this last stage of the peace process. He gave his imprimatur to Operation Chiffon, although I don't think he ever knew it was called Operation Chiffon, but he gave the go-ahead to continue the back-channel talks with Robert that lead on to Good Friday. Moving to, to Adams and, and McGuinness, and I think you've touched on it, but McGuinness had this sort of gift of leadership. But Adams, long-term president of, of Sinn Féin, why is it that McGuinness does seem to attract that kind of more devoted attachment to, whereas Jerry, Jerry Adams, you don't get the sense that, that, he, that he inspires that kind of loyalty? The, the first thing to understand is that the relationship between Adams and McGuinness was central to the whole peace process. Normally you find in, in insurgencies where you have two lead leaders like um, Nokomo and Mugabe in Zimbabwe or Rhodesia prior to Zimbabwe's independence, which is a war I also covered on the spot, when you had two, two strong leaders, both leaders of different wings of the resistance movement, and they split, and therefore the movement splits. Adams and McGuinness never split like Nokomo and Mugabe did in Rhodesia, Zimbabwe. So that is what cemented the movement, the two of them, two of them together. And they, was, they were friends as well as comrade in arms. It's comrade in arms. And I think, you know, the rank and file members of the IRA respected McGuinness because he never, he, he, you know, he denied having anything to do with interrogation of informers and that kind of alleged informers. But I think there was a feeling that, you know, McGuinness accepted who he was and what he was in the leadership of the so-called armed struggle. He was at the forefront of it. The problem for Jerry Adams is that he never admitted it because he always denied being a member of the IRA. And I think in the eyes of young and not so young volunteers who've been through all this as a mark against him, whereas for McGuinness, it was a big, it was a big plus. And when Martin McGuinness was elected to Mid-Ulster, finally as a, as a Westminster MP, I remember being in the Felons Club filming the celebra- Sinn Féin celebrations because Adams was re-elected to Westminster. And for the first time, McGuinness was elected as a Westminster MP. I remember a Republican, Republican activist uh, talking to me saying, yeah, you know, it's great that Jerry's been re-elected, but what really matters is Martin. Martin was elected. Martin, you know. So Martin was the sort of talismanic leader of militant republicanism. You know, I've described him as being the single most important influential figure within the IRA on the island of Ireland. I mean, there were others, but that's where McGuinness is because in the end, you know, he, he recognised, no doubt, help and was no doubt helped to be persuaded by Adams that the political route was the way to, the only way to United Ireland, and that was what was critical. With that, and so the axis of Adams and McGuinness was again crucial in getting 
the IRA without a major split. I mean, there were splits, obviously, because the Republican movement decided to take part in a partitionist settlement, which split the IRA. But the major, major split never happened. What we're seeing today is still a minority of committed Republicans, but nothing like the provisional IRA were at its at its height, and it was the uh, the melding of the complementary skills, military and political, of Adams and McGuinness that made the progress of Sinn Féin and the IRA possible from nowhere in the cities, from, from Cheney Walk to through to Good Friday in 1998. If we look at where we are today, and obviously we've had the Brexit result, which is which has complicated matters, to say the least. And then and then we have seen, I mean, the tragic story of Lyra McKee being killed in an attack a few years ago. Yeah. Where do you see things stand at the moment for the peace process? Because it's an ever moving. It's not a it's not a thing that ended in uh, with the signing of the uh, of the agreement in, in 1998, is it? It's uh, it's an ever moving beast, I suppose. The IRA is still there, as Adam said, hasn't gone away, you know. But it's a very different IRA, but ideologically rooted in the same ideology as the provisional IRA, which is Ireland unfree should never be at peace. The only way to achieve that peace is by armed force. And the dissidents since the split shortly before Good Friday, because Sinn Féin and the IRA agree to enter talks that result in power sharing. That split has remained. And what we're now seeing is that the different militant, violent republicanism have coalesced in the shape of what is known as called the so-called new IRA, although they don't call themselves the new IRA, they call themselves the IRA. Uh, and they are, you know, they're dangerous. They don't have huge support, but they have enough support to operate. As, you, as you'll see by looking at video footage of rioting on Easter Monday this year, last year, uh, Laura McKee uh, was was killed, not targeted, but she was, she, there was no, no, you know, she was killed by it is believed gunmen, gunmen or gunmen from the so-called new IRA. So that you know, they are dangerous. But MI5 has had considerable success in infiltrating the so-called new IRA by recruiting or using a, a pre-existing agent to infiltrate the command structure and the leadership of the so-called new IRA, remarkably. And the trial of nine senior members, alleged senior members of the new IRA and Seru, which is it's, it's Sinn Féin, it's political wing, are due in court fairly soon because the agent who has now been exfiltrated is no longer in Northern Ireland. Surprise, surprise. Helps facilitate the bugging, the video recording, the sound recording of meetings of senior alleged members of the so-called new IRA, deliberating discussion, tactics and everything at the highest level. So a lot is expected to come out at that trial when that trial um, is, is due to be held to watch. But they are, they are a threat, there's no question. Ideologically, they are from the same uh, seam as the provisional IRA, 
but they maintain, I mean, they maintain the politics via, via Seru, but they are not, they, they do not have the support that the IRA had in its heyday and Sinn Féin now has today. But they are a danger, they are a threat. Uh, we're coming to the end, so it's been wonderful to talk to you. And the, one of the appendixes, I think uh, um, Appendix 2 in, in the end of the book is, is a, a eulogy to Brendan Duddy, who, who sadly died recently, in the last five years, I think. There's a wonderful picture in the book of the two of you at his yeah. granddaughter's wedding, chuckling away. He does seem like the sort of guy who you'd happily spend an afternoon drinking multiple cups of tea or well, Irish whiskey. And <laughs> Brendan, we're more talking. <laughs> but that's a lovely picture, um, which I asked the family's permission if I could use. And they said, yes, please, please go ahead. Uh, but that was after Brendan had a serious stroke, a debilitating stroke. And I you know, kept in touch with the family and would go to see them from time to time. And when you think of the man that he was and what he was able to do when I last saw him uh, after the stroke, he'd lost most of the power of speech, movement of limbs. Um, but, you know, he could he still knew what was going on and knew who I was when I, I was in the hotel. And some members of the family saw me and said, why don't you come along? So... I went along as a sort of uninvited but welcome guest. And, uh, and that picture sums up a lot about Brendan and also some, some, sums up something about me that, you know, that was the kind of relationship that enabled me to do what I did and, uh, and to give Brendan the credit that was due and Michael Oakley, because Michael is now ill, as Michael is in his mid going on to the late. 1980s. Robert is 89. Frank Steele died six months after I interviewed him. So it's really important that, you know, I, we have been able to collect the archive of these really important figures who all played their part in different ways, but in much the same way to help get to where we are today. Just one final question. Do you, do you think that we in, I say we living in England have a, a strong enough appreciation or an awareness of Northern Ireland as we should? Do you think that the troubles have led us that we do have that appreciation or is there just too much of a, a lack of knowledge still, do you think? I think there's a lack of knowledge. I think there's a greater amount of knowledge now. I like to think because of you know the work that we, media journalists, have done. Uh, so there is an awareness now, in particular because of Good Friday, there is a whole generation in Northern Ireland who didn't live through the troubles. I mean, the Good Friday Agreement is 25 years ago. So young people who are now becoming, you know, approaching middle age almost, have no idea of the hinterland from which they came or their parents came. And that's always worrying. And one of the reasons I've carried on doing what I'm doing is just to remind people of where, you know, we all came from, all the sides, and what happened. And the price, the terrible, terrible price that was paid and why it must never, never happen again, which is one of the reasons why in the book there are you know, detailed descriptions interspersed with what was going on in the background. You know, horrendous attacks treated you know, by all sides of the conflict, because that was, a, meant, that was me trying to just remind readers of why it was of paramount importance that every effort was made to try and bring it to an end and that's where you know five and six and others 
many others were involved just to, to serve as a reminder of where we're from and why we must never go back there again i mean i don't think we will uh, but you know the, the peace is still unsteady it's still unstable but it's still there and we just need to hang on to it and brexit didn't help no peter thank you so much for your time thank you oliver i enjoyed talking to you thank you good luck Thank you very much for listening. I do recommend Operation Chiffon and Peter's other books, Brits, Provos and Loyalists. Plenty more great history chat coming up, so do join me again. Links are in the show notes. And until next week, thank you and good night. <laughs>